Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the gracious way that you came to Zacchaeus' house, and we pray this morning that you would come to our house, Lord, and reach us as you reached Zacchaeus. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I would like all of the kids who are watching to come forward close to the screen, as close as you can, as close as the, the parent or grandparent that's with you will let you, because I have some questions for you. Do you have someone in your life who loves you? Do you have a mom who loves you? You have a maybe a dad who loves you or a grandma or a grandpa or an auntie or an uncle and they love you? Okay. Yes? Yeah? All right. Second question. Can you see their love? Like look around. Where is their where is their love? It's kind of invisible, isn't it? But it's real. You know they love you probably because they're expressing their love in some ways that you can see. They've got like invisible love, but they make it visible. How do they make it visible? Maybe your mom combs your hair at night. Or maybe your dad plays catch with you in the front yard. Maybe your grandma makes silver dollar pancakes and you know that she loves you. Now, here's a special way that you might feel love from a parent. All right. What about this? What is this, kids at home? Hmm? It's a present. Have you ever gotten one of these? It's nice to get one of these, isn't it? With your name on it. Something says your name and you like know that it's yours. This belongs to you. It was picked out for you. It was purchased for you. It was wrapped for you. And you look at it and you know, mom loves me. Dad loves me. They got this for me. It's a visible sign of invisible love, right? It's a visible sign of invisible love. You look at it, you realize, I'm loved. But you don't just look at it, do you? It's not just a symbol, is it? You want to take your fingers and rip this thing open. You want it to be yours. You want to participate in it, use it, play with it, eat it, whatever it might be. And that is a symbol of what we call a sacrament. A sacrament is a visible sign of God's invisible love. And it's not just a sign that you look at and think in your head, God loves me. Although it is that. It is also a sign that you open and eat and participate in. Like the communion meal, the, the bread and the juice or the wine. It's, a, it's like a chewable, tasteable way to remember God loves me. He loves me so much that he gave his body and blood to forgive me. And baptism, baptism is a way to uh, for us to remember that God loves us so much that he washes us clean and that we're forgiven forever and we're given a white robe to be in his presence. 
And there's all kinds of other ways in the sacramental life that we open up God's presence, that we are reminded and we can participate in his invisible love. But we do that in ways that are visible. So we're going to explore that together this spring. We're going to look at growing up sacramental, that as we participate in God's gifts, in God's life, we actually mature into his glory. Today, we're going to look at sacramental households. Sacramental households. Should I open this? Maybe later. First, before we talk about sacramental households, I just want to say that the ultimate gift, the ultimate sacrament, the ultimate visible sign of God's love is Jesus. He came in the flesh so that people who lived near him could touch him and see him. And all of us in Jesus's life and death and resurrection can see in a visible way, God loves us. He loves us so much that he would send his son to be among us, to hang out with us. And then he did hang on the cross for our sins. And that was a sign of God's heart and love. So what does it mean to set apart your homes in a way that is sacramental? How can our homes be a way that God meets us and gives us the gift of his presence? We're going to look at Psalm 24 today, so turn to Psalm 24 in your bulletins or Bibles. We might ask the question, why would we go through every room of our house or our apartment and devote it to God? Why would we devote our dorm room to God? I mean, what's the point of doing that? Why would we put strange markings on our door with chalk to do that? Think about all the activities that you do in your house or apartment or dorm room or single room occupancy apartment. Um, There's a lot of eating and drinking, right? There's breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Um, There's a lot of washing. There's sleeping. There's maybe even exercising. We take care of our bodies in our homes. We also relate with people. We talk. We play, we laugh, play games, we enjoy relationships. We sometimes work on relationships when they don't go well. There's a lot of life of the mind in the home. We read, we study, we do our homework. In some cases, we do our entire education in our homes for e-learning. We also develop the soul. We pray, we worship God like you are this morning, and um, we read the scriptures. It's like the primary place that we experience God's presence. We also do a lot of creativity. We make art. We we do woodworking. We, We paint. We write. And we work in our homes. For many of us, our homes are now our offices for Zoom meetings and working on spreadsheets. That's a lot of stuff. And God cares about all of that stuff. Our living, our working developing our minds, taking care of our bodies, getting rest. He wants to join you in all of those ordinary moments of grace. And he wants to be a part of what you're doing and include it in his kingdom and include it in transfiguring you for his kingdom. 
And he wants all of us to do everything we do in our homes as an act of worship. So look at Psalm 24.1, which will help us understand this better. Psalm 24.1 says this, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. The whole earth belongs to the Lord God. Every nook and cranny of the, of the earth, he looks at and says, in the words of Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper, that's mine. Every person in the world, every home and space and dog and cat and rock and football and restaurant, every boy, every girl belongs to God. This means that his name is ultimately on the deed of every garden apartment, bungalow, high-rise, dorm room. He can look at any one of those dwellings anywhere we live, even if it's under the bridge or in a high-rise over the bridge, he can say, that dwelling belongs to me. Now, why does God get to say that? Verse 2 tells us why he gets to say that. The psalmist says, For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Isn't that a cool way of saying that? The psalmist could have said, The earth is the Lord's because he made it. But he adds a little bit more flair to the way he says it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof for he has founded it upon the seas, picture that, and established it upon the rivers. The psalmist sounds like someone who has spent a lot of time in nature, taking in its beauty. He describes God as a kind of environmental engineer who works skillfully with rivers and seas and earth. My brother-in-law is an environmental engineer. And he works for the Ohio Air National Guard. One of his jobs is to make sure that new construction projects um, are ultimately in harmony with the natural wildlife that exists near those projects. And so he does studies of the birds and the bats and the flowers and the groundwater and balances the needs of human beings with the overall well-being of the environment. Make sure that those are in balance. And we can imagine that the Lord God at the beginning of creation, getting the balance just right on this, on this thing that we call planet Earth so that we human beings could flourish here and that nature could flourish here. The psalmist says that he's establishing the earth on the foundations of the rivers and the seas. And you can just even picture the Lord Jesus like taking measurements and watching really closely like how, how nature works together, the, the birds and the flowers and the vegetation, and the people. Um, the world is our home, and Jesus built it with love and skill for us to live in and flourish in. The earth is the Lord's, for he has founded it upon the seas and established it. But this is so far from our experience, isn't it? When we think about this earth and this world, the, the difference between, hey, this is God's carefully put together creation and, and how we experience life in this, in this world, it's, there's a painful gap between those two realities. For one thing, there's COVID-19. You know, there's a, there's, a, there's a virus that is keeping us apart. We're not flourishing right now because of this virus. We're also seeing and experiencing incredible breakdown and violence and racism 
Things have gotten really bad. There's climate change. There's, there's rising sea levels. If the earth is the Lord's, why is there all this corruption in the world and injustice? And, and why do we feel even so disconnected from our own bodies, let alone our dwelling places? There is a breach between heaven and earth. And the breach is intended to be healed. God wants to heal that breach. And it begins at a level we can understand. It begins with an invitation to come over to each other's houses. Heaven invites earth over, and then earth invites heaven over, and the psalmist is going to describe this. And out of this mutual home invitation, there is going to be an overflow of healing between creator and created. So let's look at verse 3. The Lord invites us into his house. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? The whole earth belongs to God, but there's a set-apart place that he invites people into where his pure presence is known. When Isaiah was invited into this place, he was almost undone because of how pure and holy it was with God's presence. The temple in Jerusalem used to be that place, that hill that you could ascend to, and with the right measures of purity, you could enter into the pure presence of God, but it was never complete and never perfect. And in Jesus, that temple reality, that presence of God, that purity, that holiness can make itself known anywhere in creation where his name is called upon. What does it take to come into God's presence and into his house, to come over to his house for dinner and dine with him and see him face to face? Well, verse four describes the kind of person who can be let in. He who has clean hands and a pure heart who does not lift up his or her soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Well, let's break this down. To come into God's house, the psalmist says, you have to be clean inside and out. Our hands have to be clean, meaning they cannot have been used to murder or take life or steal or otherwise harm people. Our heart has to be pure meaning that we can't have any mixed motives, impure desires, or judgy self-righteousness to enter God's house. Our soul has to be clean, meaning that we can't devote ourselves to things in creation in the wrong way. We can't love things wrongly. We can't love things over much and give them ultimate meaning and purpose. Finally, our mouth has to be clean, meaning we've never fudged the truth, sworn an oath that we didn't really mean or follow up on, or spoken ill of somebody, apart from their presence. Pure heart, pure hands, pure soul, pure mouth. With all of those requirements, none of us would be admitted over for dinner at God's house. That is the bad news. We have uncleanness everywhere in every part of our being. It's pervaded everything. This reminds me of a room in our house growing up that we called the mud room. You guys have a mud room in your house growing up? There was a lot of land to explore outside. There was a pond and woods and things would get muddy. And um, we, would, we would get so filthy that it was like, no, 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 you're not coming into this house. You're going to go in the mud room first. Because the mudroom is like, let's take care of all that dirt and all that mud and all that stank 
in the mudroom. And it wasn't just a ceremonial like, mm, I'm going to wipe off my boots. It was like, no, the boots are coming off. The shirt's coming off. Like, you're going to get hosed down and washed up and wear clean garments before you step inside for dinner. Now, Jesus Christ is the mudroom. We're too filthy to come into God's house, all of us, and in different ways. And so he offers to clean us up. That is why he made himself God in the flesh. That is why he died on the cross. He did so to take upon himself all of our lying, all of our injustice, all of our racism, all of our idol worshiping, all of our judginess and manipulation. And in exchange, he offers us his pure robes because he was sinless when he died and he was full of love when he died. And he gives all of the heavenly glory that he had, that he willingly gave up. He offers to clothe us in it, not just taking away what's impure, but clothing us in radiant purity. So after passing through the mudroom of Jesus Christ, we can then enter God's presence and what a feast is waiting for us there in his house. Verses five and six describe it. He or she will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his or her salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. And that is worth a Selah, isn't it? Uh, take a pause and pray about it. Coming into God's house doesn't just make us clean. With our own faces, we will behold the face of God. Oh, we will behold the face of the God of Jacob, the God who blessed Jacob. We get a blessing from him. You know, Jacob was an old rascal and a liar, and God forgave him and blessed him. And thus God blessed Abraham, who was a sojourner, and he blessed Rahab, who was who was a prostitute, and he blessed Moses, who was a murderer, and he made Moses' face shine like the sun by grace. And this same God will shine on us with his righteousness and his blessing when we come into his house to see his face. We receive his well-done blessing. We receive his I love you righteousness. We receive his you are my beloved daughter or son beaming smile. And we receive the food of his body and blood. God invites us into his house, which is to say God invites us into himself. And we have the great honor to invite God then into our home, into our inner sanctuary where we let our hair down. Isn't that what it is ultimately? Our homes is kind of where we let our hair down. We kind of relax. And that's really a lot of where the transformation and formation of our life happens. And that's why God wants to be there. So we invite him in. The vulnerable thing of going, all right, God, you've let me into your house. Now come into my house. Um, verse seven is best heard as someone standing outside of the city walls, someone with authority over that city, over that civilization to command the walls of the city to open. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors. Can you hear the creaking of the ancient doors as the as the uh, the crank is turned and the doors go that the king of glory may come in the psalmist speaks with authority to the gate 
Lift up your heads, be lifted up, O ancient doors. There's a purpose for being lifted up, and the purpose is the king of glory is here. He has finished his battle. He's a glorious king. He's conquered all enemies, and he wants to come over to this house, to this city, to this civilization. Now, when someone rings your doorbell or apartment buzzer, um, you're a little suspicious, right? Like, who is it? Like, who is it? You know, or like you look, you peer ever so carefully out the like, like, like behind the curtain. Um, like, who is at the door? Friend or foe? Why should I let you in? Like you say you're with the electrical company, but I'm dubious about that. You say you're de the delivery person, but I'm not so sure. If friend, come on in. If foe, the door stays shut. Verse seven is the doorbell. Verse 8 is asking, who is it? Who is this king of glory? The Lord. Strong and mighty. It's not even the Lord's representative at this point. It's the Lord himself. Mighty in battle, strong and mighty. He's led an army of saints and angels to defeat sin and death and racism and corruption and depression. And he wants to come back from his victory to rule and dwell and feast with us and over us. The same Lord who created and is renewing the whole earth is knocking on the door of our homes and of our micro civilizations he wants in. And we have the opportunity to say, come on in, King of glory. You're welcome in this place. The same Lord who made us worthy to enter his house is giving us the honor of inviting him into our house. He wants to humbly sit with us at every single breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks and enjoy us and for us to enjoy him. He wants to encourage us as we do the laundry in the afternoon. He wants to sing over us with his love as we sleep at night. The earth is the Lord's. Yes, that is true. But the way that we experience that is one household invitation at a time. And that's why we do a house blessing as Anglicans, the spiritual formation practice to invite the Lord into our homes. By inviting the glorious King into our homes, we ask him to just cover every moment of our life with his grace. I know of a man named Zach who experienced this home blessing firsthand. Um, in fact, the whole experience sort of like changed his life. Zach was, um, he worked for the government, and um, it's fair to say that he was, he was um, living a pretty corrupt life. He was abusing his power as a government official. Um, he was uh, extorting money from a lot of poor people and middle-class people. As a result, he was pretty lonely because he, he was, his wealth separated him from people, and his, his corruption separated him from people. And so people hated him. They hated his guts. You just say, lonely, rich, and corrupt. That was his life. And then one day, Zach heard Jesus. He heard the voice of Jesus prompt him to let him into his life, like knocking on the door of his life, into his financial dealings, into, into his relationships, into the way he used his power, and into his very physical home. It was as if Jesus was inviting himself over for dinner. And, and that's actually what Jesus did. He he looked directly into Zach's eyes and said, Zacchaeus, 
I need you to come down from the tree because I want to come over to your house today. There's going to be a party. You're going to invite me. You're invited to. Um, and Zacchaeus scrambles down from the tree and he receives the Lord joyfully into his home. You can even picture the moment when Jesus walked over the threshold of Zacchaeus' front door, kind of stoops under the um, top of the door frame and just sort of like takes it all in like, hey, this is a nice place you got here, Zacchaeus. Thanks for inviting me over. I hope you don't mind. I brought a whole crew with me. It's going to be a nice dinner. And it, it was as if the glory of Jesus sort of like naturally filled his home with light and his soul with peace and, and sort of like brought forward what wasn't right, which was his financial dealings. At one point during the dinner, Zacchaeus just like voluntarily stood up and he committed himself to make amends with everyone he had defrauded and give away half of all his wealth to the poor. Now, how does Jesus respond to this? He says, it's almost like a, a house blessing declaration. He says, today salvation has come to this house. Isn't that a cool way of saying it? Like salvation, most importantly, came to the person of the house, which was Zacchaeus, making him a son of Abraham. Zacchaeus also, or sorry, salvation also came to the finances of the house. The operating principle of the finances of the house came, it changed as well. Salvation came to the relationships, the relationships with the defrauded people around the house and the poor who lived around the house. Salvation transformed Zacchaeus' house from a place of selfishness and isolation to a place of expansive love for God and neighbor. So here's what Methodist pastor Will Willimon said about house blessings. We do not so much bless houses as we bless the home which is formed within the house. Our homes represent places of sanctuary where we have our primary experiences of God's love. Like Zacchaeus, we have a house with an operating principle and a place to let our hair down. And salvation needs to come to our homes. Um, home is the sanctuary, a place of meaningful conversation and unconditional love and rest. And it's the place God wants to meet us. Now, a house blessing is a spiritual practice that serves two purposes. Number one, it invites God to fill our homes with his light and his presence. Number two, it trains us to be attentive to his presence in all of the ordinary moments after the house blessing. So we ask the question, like, what would that look like for us? What would that look like uh, for salvation to come to an ordinary Chicago home? Here's what this looked like for our family. Take a look. <laughs> 